tell you, she hated every moment of that. <laughs> we didn't pay any of our actors and actresses, but in a couple years after I save and I tell you that I'm taking a trip to Jamaica, this is why. And I'm not kidding. She actually made me promise to take her to Jamaica if she was going to do that. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke 1. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That's true. So like we're going at some point, but it's going to take a while to save and get there. Uh, so Luke chapter 1, grab your Bibles. We are uh, we're working through this, this series, But If Not For Grace, and uh, wanted to start with, uh, with some Old Testament characters and, and Elizabeth and Zechariah, even though their story shows up in Luke 1, which is the New Testament. It is, it is certainly they that are Old Testament characters. The apostle, or the, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and, and then he came. And so what we have in Luke 1 is the accounting of this faithful couple, but as we put together this series, I also wanted us to, to make sure that we didn't just look at the men, which are so often uh, front and center, the 12 disciples that turned to be 12 apostles, uh, but also the leading ladies, because God's grace is just as at work in the lives of these remarkable women uh, as these men who did remarkable things. And so I wanted to make sure that we, we were able to understand and hear the story of, of Ruth and Elizabeth. And, um, and so as this began to to take form and shape, um, it became pretty clear that we weren't going to be able to just do Elizabeth without also doing Zechariah. And so we're going to aim to try and understand both of them, and uh, the book of Luke gives us Luke's account as he gets through and thinks through um, this couple, this faithful couple, and what took place in their lives, and how the waiting was going to be no Longer, And there's some amazing things that I think we're going to be able to identify with as we jump into their story and hear and learn some things about who this couple was. So to that end, let's pray as we get going and jump into God's Word. And then we've got to consider a few things historically, and then we'll jump into the text there. But join me. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come now and be gracious to us, that we would understand what it is that you have said, that as we open up your word, and as we read it, as we think about it, as we turn our focus and attention to it, that you would help us to understand it. God, help us to see your grace in it, and what it is that you are doing in the lives of this faithful couple. God, we thank you for the the way that you confirm and fulfill your words, and, and you made tremendous promises to this group of people in the Old Testament which have been fulfilled, which then you tell us to look at and draw encouragement from as we are waiting for your promises of Christ's return to be fulfilled. And so God, we want to marvel and magnify your grace. Understand more of who you are and what it is that you have done and are doing. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we begin to think through this entire summer about God's grace, it's really important to know exactly what is God's grace. And it's not just his unmerited favor. That's a helpful definition. It's just not a complete 
definition. And so what we did last year or last week in the definition given and, and put forward last Sunday was that God's grace is his goodness towards those who deserve wrath. So grace isn't just unmerited. We haven't just not worked for it. We actually don't even deserve it. It's the last thing that we deserve. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of those sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And so you have God's grace being given towards those who deserve his wrath. Now, that's everybody everywhere. None of us deserve God's goodness. And God is demonstrating his common grace towards all who believe, believers, or to all who live, believers and unbelievers alike, in the fact that this morning in Waynesboro, there are people who don't know the Lord, and that sun is shining on them as it will us when we leave this building. The rain that comes to water the ground, it doesn't just water the fields of those who have placed their faith and trust of Jesus, it waters everyone's field. I would submit to you that the very breath that we are able to breathe is also an expression of God's common grace. Because if we understand sin for what it is, this cosmic treason that we have that we have been guilty of and found guilty of against a holy and righteous God, the very last thing we deserve is life. The wages of our sin is death. Well, God is gracious to us and he is gracious to all who are undeserving of it, and he is good. And in that sense, we can talk about a lot of different ways that God's grace shows up in the scriptures. Last week, we looked at God's saving grace and taking Ruth, this pagan worshiper who may have even been involved in child sacrifice as she was growing up in that nation of Moab and sovereignly saves her and places her in a family where Boaz is going to be a noble, honorable, worthy man. And God saves her and he places her in the line and lineage of Jesus Christ. Her second mother-in-law, Boaz's mother, was Rahab, the former prostitute. Another example of God's saving grace. And taking that woman from a pagan nation and placing her in the nation of Israel. We can talk about God's sustaining Grace. We'll see that on display in the story of Elizabeth and Zachariah. We can talk about God's sufficient grace, His abundant grace, His empowering grace, His future grace. God's goodness in the future come eternity towards those who deserve His wrath. God's grace is multifaceted. And this morning we turn our focus and attention on God's sustaining grace. Grace, And we need to do a little bit of work in history. Now, it, it's almost laughable what we're going to try to do here because we're going to have to think about a 400-year period of time and do so with about six bullet points. So just for comparison, think of us trying to summarize all of America's history in six bullet points. And that's what we're going to end up trying to do here. But there's a period of time called the intertestamental period. That sounds really fancy. What it means is, is that there was a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That period of time lasted for about 400 years. And those years were called the silent years. Because God was not speaking. 
He had spoken through his prophet Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament books. He had made promises that a messenger was going to come to prepare the way for the people. And then the son was going to come. And then he became silent for 400 years. And there's an amazing, amazing amount of things that happened during those 400 years. And Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in those 400 years. Now, as we step into thinking about those 400 years, we've got to understand something else that the Scriptures say. And they do so in Galatians 4.4 and in Romans 5.6. In Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What this verse and what Romans 5, 6 tells us, where at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, in part is that Jesus came at the exact moment he was supposed to come. And I think we can back that up a little bit to see that Elizabeth got pregnant at the exact moment that she was supposed to be pregnant. And you can work that back, those 400 years of silence, that God wasn't silent in the sense that he was unactive. He was working his plan, which included 400 years of silence. And that's part of the sustaining grace we see on display in the lives of this couple. And so what happens to Elizabeth and Zechariah does not happen by accident. It happens absolutely by design and divine plan that God made and had accomplished in the fullness of time. And so it was about 445 BC that some of the Jews that had been taken to Babylon were able to come back and Nehemiah looks around and realizes there's no wall. And so they in 445 BC they complete the wall. So they had come back a few years prior But there is, during this time, a few names that you might recognize, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. They lived during these 400 years of silence. They lived at this period of time. They were Greek philosophers, really pioneering the way that most of modern thought takes place today. Well, Aristotle had a disciple, somebody that was really one of his shining stars, and that man's name was Alexander the Great. He had an overarching goal of unity and globalization. And he began Hellenizing most of the known world. And that is a, is a verb that was created to speak to the process of taking Greek culture and making all other cultures look like Greek culture. And that's what led to the Hebrew Old Testament being translated into Greek. Almost all of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament come from this Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was during this 400 years of silence that the Pharisees arose. Now they arose as a group desiring to retain purity for the Jewish religion. There was a lot of nobility in what they desired. They didn't want to see the distinctiveness of obedience of God's people as God had instructed in the Old Testament lost. Well, as we get a little bit closer to where Elizabeth and Zechariah come on the scene, in 198 B.C., the Jews were forbidden from practicing Judaism. They had been conquered, and it became a capital crime to observe the Sabbath, and I believe even hold a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
punished by death. Well, they fought for their independence and regained some of that in 164, and the temple was then reopened and rededicated. In 142, they gained full freedom from those occupying forces under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. And it was about 800 year, or 80 years of rest and peace until Rome in 63 BC decided they were going to come in and conquer the Jews. Now, we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah were well advanced in years. We don't actually know how old they were, but it probably is plausible that somebody well advanced in years is at least over 63 years old. They, I believe, would have been there when Rome came in and conquered. He would have been a priest at that time. And we see their faithfulness in continuing to serve the Lord and wait for the Lord and hope in the Lord and trust in the Lord. And it was about 20 years after 63 and 40 B.C. that Caesar Augustus appointed Herod the Great to become king of the Jews. Herod the Great wasn't even Jewish. During these 400 years of silence, there was no Davidic king ruling. Herod the Great wasn't a Davidic king. He wasn't even Jewish. So the idea that the Messiah would come and reign and rule from the line and lineage of David on the throne of David, that's not something you see happening because there's no even Jewish man on the throne. There was no prophets revealing at this point in time where Malachi would have been the last of the Old Testament prophets to say, God has spoken and I have a word for you, his people. There was no more of that and there were large amounts of time during these silent years that the priests were not even able to make sacrifices because the temple was shut down. And if you're an Old Testament Jew following all of the prescriptions of the Old Testament law, that means there was no forgiveness of sins. You're talking about a period of waiting and angst and wondering, has God abandoned us? He's silent. Where is he? And it's in that context in the fullness of time, that God breaks the silence and he does so with an angel standing in the temple before the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place and he speaks to a man who had lived his life in faithfulness and obedience to God and said the waiting is done. And Luke picks up that story for us in chapter 1. And he begins to write, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, I've always tried to highlight this before you when the scriptures do this. Luke is very, very specific about who he is talking about. He did not just tell you there was a guy who lived in a place who did a thing at one point in time. He has just said, here's the king that was in charge, here's the priest by name, here was his division of the 24 divisions of priests, here was his wife and where her line and lineage backed off. There could be and is the implication in these verses, you go find them. I'm talking about real people. The Bible is often so specific about these types of details, it speaks to its truthfulness. 
Because as Luke is running around creating this orderly account of everything that Theophilus had been taught so that Theophilus might have certainty, it would have been real easy for Theophilus to take Luke's account of the gospel to go to that division and go, hey, I, I need to know, did you guys have a guy named Zechariah that was serving? Was his wife named Elizabeth? Was she a daughter of Aaron? That's all confirmable and he did not tell us that there was some guy in some place that did something at some time. Now, here's all the details. The scripture confirms its truthfulness oftentimes through this. Verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. The idea of them being righteous before God and walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord was an Old Testament way of saying that they were faithfully obedient to the Lord. They were not perfect people. They were obedient people. We would use words today to describe these people as mature believers. We'd say they're a mature believer. They're not perfect, but they're a godly person. They obey the Lord. They seek to obey the Lord. And if they, if they know that God has said to do something, you better believe that they are doing everything they can to respond in obedience to that. And so Luke tells us that these, these people are faithful, but Elizabeth was barren. And I think it's really, really important for us to note that in two consecutive verses, Luke does something very, very specific. He tells us that Elizabeth's barrenness was not the result of her sinfulness because she's acclaimed as a woman who faithfully obeyed the Lord and walked blamelessly before him. So her barrenness was not the result of her sinfulness. As we'll see, it was because God had a plan. And that plan included a lot of waiting, but she was not barren because she was sinful. And we cannot draw a straight line between the angst that may plague us with illness and waiting today with what may be considered or even at times said to us, well, you've just got a bunch of sin in your life. It's not a one-to-one -one corollary. We see that on display in this woman's life. Well, Luke continues in verse 8, well, now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, there were 24 divisions of priests, roughly 18,000 priests. 24 divisions broken down into 700 priests per division. He was of the division of Abijah, and so there would have been 700 priests in his division. And priests served twice a year for one week at a time. And they would rotate in and out. So his division would have come into Jerusalem. They would have served in the temple for one week. Then they would have all gone home. And somebody else's division would have come in. But there were 700 priests there serving. And they took very seriously, Proverbs 16, 23. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they would cast lots to figure out who was to go in and burn the incense for that day. Incense burning comes from Exodus 30, which is a practice that was considered and declared by God to be most holy before 
the Lord. And the altar of incense would have stood right in front of the veil that would have separated the most holy place from the holy of holy place. So you can't go any farther as a Jewish priest than you went except on the Day of Atonement. So you got to see this. The fullness of time. God's plan. Zechariah is one of 18,000 men that could be serving. He's one of 700 men that could be chosen. And the lot casted to burn incense was only something you were able to be or do one time in your life. This was the only time Zechariah would have ever gone into the temple to burn incense. This is the time that Gabriel shows up and God breaks the silence. In the fullness of time. There was a lot of waiting. There was a lot of silence. But it was because God had a plan. Zechariah goes into the temple. We pick up the story in verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, wouldn't you be? He saw him and he fell and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. He will turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God has just broken the silence in the fullness of time and has declared two of the most amazing things to Zechariah that he could have ever heard declared. Your wife's going to have a baby and the Messiah is on his way. How amazing of a moment is this? And it's Gabriel standing before him declaring these things. And Zechariah asks, and, and, and he probably acts a whole lot like we would. In verse 18, he goes, how shall I know this? How do I know this is true? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak into the day, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah, the answer to your question, how do you know this will be true? You're not going to be able to speak. There's your answer. Verse 22, when Zechariah came out, he was unable to speak. And the people that had been waiting and praying realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and they kept making signs to, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of his service was done, the end of that week, he went to his home. After these days, Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me. 
to take away my reproach among people. I want to marvel at God's grace, and particular this Sunday and these two individuals, His sustaining grace. And that fact that He has a plan, even though for them there was years, a lifetime of silence in regards to the question of would we have a child or not. And for them, a lifetime of silence in regards to when was the Messiah going to come. And perhaps as the other faithful Levites and priests would have handed down, not just the scriptures, but the oral account of all of those to them, from his father to his grandfather to her father and grandfather, they both came from priestly families. There was a lifetime of waiting. But it was because God had a plan. Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered. You see God's grace on display in him and that he comes to tell him, your prayers have been heard, your wife will give you a son and the Messiah is on the way. We see God's grace in Elizabeth's life in that she will give birth to this son. His name will be John. The name John means the Lord is gracious. Elizabeth says in Luke 1.36 that God has taken away her reproach. Luke tells us that her barrenness was not the result of her sinfulness. But she recounts that there had been a whole lot of reproach that she had bore. Perhaps the scorn of society or just the, the subtle comments here and there from family members or friends or whomever... Wondering why and what's broken and where's, where is it not working. And it's because God had a plan. God took away her reproach. We're told later in Luke 158 that God showed her great mercy. We see God's grace of the Holy Spirit on display in Luke 1. In Luke 115, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Luke 1.35, we didn't look at this because we'll deal with Mary later. But the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and she'll conceive a child. Still in Luke 1, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke 1.41. Zechariah in 1.67 was filled with the Holy Spirit. There was 400 years of silence and then God unleashed an enormous amount of activity. He breaks the silence. He begins to now fill his people with his spirit to prepare the way for the Messiah. His sustaining grace is on display. Ruth is an excellent example of somebody who was was saved by grace. And you highlight saving grace in the story of Ruth. And she made that decisive break to say no more to Kamash and no more to Moab. And and she left family to follow the one true God. And as we looked at last week, some of you have that as part of your story. Some of you have made that decisive break. And there may be still the ripple effects of family relationships where nobody really understands what what you're doing here this morning. And and what's this cult you're a part of that you'd go and and go to this church every Sunday. And there's there's a point where we see in the story of Ruth something that a lot of you can identify with. Those of us that maybe don't know anything else but growing up in church... 
think we can absolutely identify with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Those of us that don't know anything other than Sunday mornings was always spent in Sunday school and in a worship service. You maybe can't remember a point in time in your life where you didn't believe in Jesus. You didn't pray. You didn't, you didn't sit down. Your, your dad or your mother didn't instruct you in the things of the Lord. Elizabeth and Zechariah marvel, calls us to marvel at God's sustaining grace. And both are just as amazing. At least there's been times in my life, perhaps you can relate, that sometimes I've downplayed the grace of God in my life because it didn't seem to have the debauchery to Jesus flair to it. You, you know what I'm talking about. That person who, who, who praised God for it is like I was, I was in a crack house and I was strung out and, and there I got saved and then I never wanted any of that ever again. And like you marvel at that and you go, oh my goodness, God is so amazing in the fact that he took that person who was absolutely turning their backs as much as they could from the Lord and saves them by his grace. I mean, we marvel at Ruth. We marvel at Rahab. But... At times, I feel like I've downplayed God's grace, His sustaining grace in my life by going, ah, maybe it's not, maybe it's okay for me, where it might have been amazing for them because I've never really known anything other than God and church and Sunday school. And, and there's a couple things we've got to recognize. One is we're before a holy and righteous God, just as sinful as the person in the crack house. We've got to be careful there. But his sustaining grace is just as amazing as his saving grace. We can't minimize our need for his saving grace in our lives because we deserve the very same wrath that Rahab deserved as a pagan prostitute. We deserve the very same wrath that Ruth deserves. But we also can't minimize his sustaining grace in our lives because that's just as amazing. God sustained Elizabeth and Zechariah through a lifetime of waiting and hoping and praying and waiting some more. He had promised that the Messiah was going to come. They wanted nothing more than, a, than an earthly answer to a good prayer. God, we'd love a son. We'd love a child. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And God was saying, wait. See, we find ourselves today waiting for the return of the Messiah. And I think some of us find ourselves right now desperately praying about things happening in life. When will I get answers to those questions that just never seem to go away? When will I no longer be sick? When will I find a job? When will that wayward child repent? When will we conceive? We can identify with Elizabeth and Zechariah because we're also waiting for the Messiah. And yet there's things here in our lives on earth that we, we, we're taking before the Lord and, and, and we're, we're hoping and we're praying and we're trusting and we're believing that He's got a plan and we're waiting. 
We see his sustaining grace absolutely on display. Go to verse 57, Luke chapter 1. We'll hit the tail end of this story. I told you we're going to skip really all of Mary, and we're going to come back to her later. Mary, when she found out that Elizabeth was pregnant, traveled and began to stay with Elizabeth. And Luke tells us in verse 56 that she stayed for about three months. And Mary was, or Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary came. So Mary would have been there right up until the moment, and then she returned home. In verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, just hit the pause button real quick because this is one of those details the scripture gives us there in verse 62 that we just cannot skip over. Because Zechariah was only unable to speak. He was not unable to hear. They could have said, hey, Zechariah, thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you want him to be called John? But instead, they're running around making signs before him because they think he's incapable of hearing. And Luke just throws in this little detail for us to just kind of give us the humanity and the coloring of that. As I read it, I kind of felt like I did was I was standing outside of the door of a taxi cab in China trying to explain to the cab driver where I wanted to go, armed with my Google map written in English, and just a really loud voice. And his, he seemed to not understand me. What do you do in that situation? You just talk louder. Because apparently, really loud words in English make a whole lot more sense than really quiet words in English. All right, But I think that's part of the scene here. Is they forget that, that Zechariah didn't lose his hearing. He lost his speech. They could have just said, hey man, thumbs up or thumbs down. Is he called John or not? But no, they're running around looking like idiots, and like I did standing outside that cab and just trying to be understood. John, or Zechariah, verse 63, asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke blessing to God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You see God's sustaining grace on display in the lives of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now they don't offer us, and Luke is not offering us empty promises that God will give us the answer to every one of our prayers here on earth. So I'm not up here telling you that if you're legitimately praying and waiting and wondering, when am I going to get that answer? Whatever it might be. I don't believe Elizabeth and Zechariah 
promise us that we're going to get that answer. What they do is point our focus and attention on a God who is sovereignly working in the waiting because he has a plan. And you may never get the answer, but it's not because he doesn't have a plan. God could have allowed Elizabeth to conceive early in their marriage. He could have spared her from the reproach of the townspeople, perhaps even family members. But he had a plan. A plan that demonstrated more of his glorious saving and sustaining grace than any other plan would have been. A plan that we might not be able to fully get our hands wrapped around and our minds wrapped around. Because we might honestly look at it and go, we probably would have done it a little differently. Maybe, maybe save the reproach thing. And... But God had a plan. And he was sustaining them through this plan. And it was a plan that revealed His amazing, sustaining grace in the lives of these two Old Testament saints. One of the verses of amazing grace says, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be for long as life endures. That's sustaining grace. That's the grace, in part, we see on display in the lives of Elizabeth and Zechariah. 